Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Henry Olson, who's a Washington Post columnist, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the author of the must-read book, The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue-Collar Conservatism, and a leading commentator and analyst of global politics. If there's an election somewhere in the world, there's a good chance that Henry has well-developed views about the issues and candidates. I'm grateful to speak with him about his interesting career, as well as some of the big ideological and socio-political trends, including the rise of populism, that are shaping modern politics around the world. Henry, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me, Sean. Let's start with your personal biography. You graduated from the University of Chicago Law School and then clerked at the United States Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yet, you subsequently walked away from the law to pursue a career as a think tank scholar and political commentator. Why? What drew you away from the law into the world of ideas and politics? Well, I had been involved in the world of ideas and politics well before going to law school. I studied political theory at Claremont McKenna College as an undergraduate, and I had been involved with the American Republican Party since my days in middle school. And I thought, well, maybe I should go try and make some money after doing this and went to law school. What I found was that I wanted to go back to what I had left, only approach it in a slightly different way. And that's what led me into the think tank world and ultimately into the political commentating slash opinion journalist world. I only spent three years practicing law and then I jumped ship and became the executive director at the Commonwealth Foundation, which is Pennsylvania's conservative think tank. And the rest, is, as they say, was history. As I mentioned, Henry, you have an unparalleled knowledge and expertise about politics around the world. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how have you developed such broad yet deep awareness of global politics? And second, which country's politics do you think are underrated in terms of the level of ideas and debate? So let's take the first question first. Uh, I just love politics and campaigns. And what I discovered is that once I was able to gain access to international information, that there's a lot that you can learn about your own country by looking at other countries. So debates about things like nationalism and trade and the viability or the democratic legitimacy of international institutions are sometimes more important in one country before they surface into another country. And of course, those questions were often more debated in Britain before they became 
obviously debated in the United States with the rise of Trump. So I also started to look on the internet and found that I could satisfy my political nerd side by looking up election data, using Google Translate to find out what people were saying in their own language about politics. And essentially, it's a hobby that while other people are watching television or going to live concerts, I'm fiddling around on the internet looking at the political demography of Belgium. Want to know where Flom's belong doing well? I'm your man. I should encourage listeners, if they're interested in learning more about electoral dynamics around the world, they should follow Henry's Twitter account, uh, as well as his uh, frequent Washington Post column, which doesn't just cover U.S. politics, but uh, truly reflects his expertise in, in political trends all over the world. Henry, one final biographical question before we get on to some of these big political trends. You once won $250,000 as a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? What was that experience like? Yeah, well, 250,000 American, I should say, not, uh, not Canadian. I've been a nerd and a trivia hound all my life. And when I was living in Los Angeles after graduating from college or university, I tried out for a lot of game shows in the early 1980s and found that I would often pass the knowledge quiz. They always test you to see whether you can have enough knowledge in their format to do credibly. But then I failed the contestant quiz because really how many boring white nerdy guys do you want on a game show? But Millionaire was different. Uh, They did not have a contestant quiz. You just got on by passing the knowledge quiz and it took me a year and a half to get on. And then it was just surreal. It's 36 hours in New York. They took me on stage, introduced me to the host, Regis Philbin at the time, ran me through some practices and then brought me under the bright lights to see if I could perform. And I uh, have a cool hand, hit my mark. And as you say, the rest is history. And darn those three stooges. Very cool. Uh, I've watched the episode before and it's funny watching you try to explain to Regis what a think tank is and what a think tank does. Um, let, let's move on, Henry, to the, the rise of populism. There's a tendency to focus on the Trump election and the Brexit referendum when one thinks of present day populism. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, your Washington Post a column frequently highlights populist expressions elsewhere around the world, including Norway, Chile, Bulgaria, and so on. These political developments have often come at the expense of traditional conservative politicians or parties. Help me and our listeners understand what's going on. Why have we seen the rise of political populism in so many countries in recent years? How much of the explanation is common and how much of it is contingent? What I would say is different countries have different contingencies, but the trends are relatively similar in many countries because populism in today is arising out of the failure of traditional political parties, leaders, and viewpoints to address the problems that have emerged since the turn of the century. There's really three types of populisms in the world, and you'll see them in different countries to different degrees, depending on the country. There's left-wing populism, there's right-wing populism, and there's centrist populism. Left-wing populism is the sort that you might see in Bernie Sanders in the United States, or Sinn Féin in Ireland, or uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, which is that they take 
an old school capitalist critique of capitalism and apply it in non-traditional ways, often combined with nationalism. So it become, in a sense, you could view the Scottish Nationalist Party as a left-wing populist party. Uh, and they are extremely important in many political parties around the world. Then you have right-wing populism, uh, or more accurately, nationalist populism that tends to come from a blue-collar background, people who have been economically and culturally moved aside in the last two decades, and often will say things like, I want my country back. Uh, and again, this typified by uh, the, the People's Party of Canada, it's typified in a softer way by Doug Ford or Francois Legault in Canada, it's typified by Trump, typified by Brexit, and I could go on and on about people all around the world. And then you have centrist populism, and that's the sort that was often part of one of these two, but sometimes it stands on its own, like it did in the Czech Republic or Czechia with Anders Babish and with uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy or in many of the countries in Bulgaria, where it's essentially not trying to critique an economic or cultural policy, but simply says the elites are corrupt. It's time to govern from common sense. Uh, as I said, you can hear those themes in both left-wing and right-wing populists, but it's a distinct strain. And sometimes it emerges in a distinct way to, in some ways, sometimes elect the leader of the country. You've written that if populism's main strength is its ability to bring expression to unaddressed or underaddressed problems, its main weakness is the lack of an affirmative policy agenda. As you wrote in January 2021, Henry, the populists often have a clear set of instincts, but little in the way of a detailed policy program. What's the main obstacle here? Is there something inherent to populism that limits its capacity to produce a clear, coherent governing agenda? Or are there institutional barriers that explain the lack of such an agenda? I think there's a little bit of both. But the first is that the sort of political entrepreneur who can see the populist movement tends to be the person who can grasp a new situation and communicate in strongly emotional language, whether that's the language of Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the United States or Nigel Farage in Britain or Matteo Salvini in Italy. So these are people who are ahead of the trend and can communicate an idea to the masses. They tend not to be policy experts. And because they're coming from outside of an established political order, they don't have a lot of policy experts hanging around them. They attract people who share those ideas or those instincts, and then people develop a policy agenda if those people or those parties start to gain traction. But there is an institutional barrier, and that is that, again, populism necessarily is coming from the outside of an established political order, which means it also tends to come from outside of the entities that credential people to run government, whether it's the academy or whether it's people who serve in government, either in legislative or executive roles, these people tend to have bought into an existing worldview. And consequently, the people who are trying to shatter the worldview don't have access to those people. And those people don't necessarily then flock to the new leader and say, oh, let me help you. So eventually what happens over time is you develop that expertise, the longer somebody and an institution or party shows traction, 
but particularly in the early stages, you have both a dispositional and an institutional hindrance to actually having a detailed, costed out, workable policy agenda. Let's turn the conversation to your book, Working Class Republican, about Ronald Reagan, which I would strongly encourage listeners to read. The book challenges the conventional narrative that the Reagan presidency was marked by a strong fidelity to a libertarian economic orthodoxy. In fact, you effectively make the case that President Reagan was something of a populist himself. Uh, Let me ask you a two-part question. First, can you elaborate on the book's thesis? And second, why do you think the mythology of Reagan has come to deviate so much from his actual record? So with respect to the thesis, I can summarize it pretty quickly, which was that to understand Ronald Reagan, you have to take him seriously when he says, as he did many times, that he didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left him. He was a person who was on the conventional left in his youth, the 1930s, the 1940s, into the 1950s. He was a member of the Democratic Party. He was the head of Hollywood for Truman Barkley in the 1948 presidential campaign. He voted enthusiastically for Franklin Roosevelt in all four of his presidential efforts. So this is a guy who conventionally is understood to be in favor of more government, and then he becomes somebody on the right. And so what Reagan was, was somebody who interpreted Franklin Roosevelt rather than directly opposed him. He was somebody who wanted to increase the degree of popular self-control. Even in his early speeches, he's talking more about bureaucracy and how it is strangling popular control and freedom than he is talking in the abstract ways of libertarians about natural rights or about uh, state control of the economy. He often endorses a lot of interventions in the economy, but says they've gone too far or they're no longer what the people want or things along that line. So my thesis is that to understand Reagan is to understand that he was about the internal self-government and the dignity of the individual about more than anything else. And so how did he get misinterpreted? Well, first of all, he got misinterpreted because he's a great politician. He built a coalition around his ideas. He was not an academic trying to explain his ideas. And so what would happen is, as is in any good politician, different parts of the coalition came to him for different reasons. And the libertarian side of the coalition, the people who were at making abstract arguments against government saw part of what they wanted in him. And then they became people who interpreted him for others. So there's a lot of people who've never read Reagan, never listened to a Reagan speech, but they've heard of Reagan through the libertarian interpreters of him. And consequently, when I say things to them like, did you know Ronald Reagan supported compromise rather than dying on principle? Or did you know Ronald Reagan supported tax increases when it was necessary? Or Ronald Reagan um, believed that you shouldn't discriminate against gays at a time in 1978 when he took that stand when it was quite popular to discriminate against gays because they've never heard of him directly. They are surprised when I say this, and that's because the high priests of Reaganism, as I've said, took over the Church of Reagan's teaching and just pushed the actual teaching out of the temple. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. It's worth noting that one of the reasons that Canada ultimately came to the table on a bilateral and ultimately North American free trade agreement was because of the Reagan administration's use of of tariffs that threatened Canadian access to the American market. So just a, a concrete example, as you say, of the willingness of of President Reagan and his administration to, to occasionally deviate from libertarian orthodoxy in the name of broader political or, or national goals. If I can come back to a contemporary populist conservative agenda, how much of it, in your view, should be focused on economic issues, including, for instance, middle-class stagnation versus cultural issues, including the rise of so-called wokeism. Um, maybe to put it differently, Henry, is it your view that a challenge to left-wing ideas about race, gender, and identity are a political winner for conservatives in the United States and Canada currently? So every country has its own different political balance. And every politician has to be acutely and finely tuned to that balance. What works for Doug Ford in Ontario or Francois Legault in Quebec is different than what would work for a populist in France, which was different than what would work for a populist in the United States. So the first thing you have to do if you are looking at it is look at what is the center of public opinion in a country rather than make a broad brush. This always works everywhere and everywhere. That's being that's ideology and one thing Ronald Reagan taught me it is to eschew ideology in favor of principles. Um, but what is generally good is embracing uh, everywhere, is embracing a theory of the nation and making that into a positive statement. That is a nation is something that embraces both rights and responsibilities of all of its citizens. It's one that's unafraid to talk about facts, scientific and moral, and nature, human nature. Uh, physical nature, things that can't be changed by the person or the party in power. And so I think with respect to the general question of wokeness, a generally acceptable conservative populist theme is that we can be tolerant of and improving of people who are in a minority of people who are, say, biologically in between male and female or in other ways, but that you can't simply deny the facts of human biology or the facts of human interaction. The idea is to unite people rather than to divide people. And so while some people on the left, I don't know if this is the case in Canada, but certainly the case in the United States and the United Kingdom, they just say, I don't know what a woman is. Well, you know, uh, you don't have to be condescending or mean, but most people on the street know what a woman is, even if they want to treat somebody who uh, you know, is trans as if they were but they can define what's in front of them. And that's the sort of manner of speech and the manner of expression about those issues that I think will work 
for a populist. And broadly speaking, these cultural issues properly addressed are winners, particularly if you put it in the context of a nation that works for all of its citizens, socially, economically, and culturally. And it uh, applies in things like advancing opportunity for everybody, not just gender or uh, race minorities, but for people who have been left behind in any way, intentionally or unintentionally. And that's something that, you know, Prime Minister Harper in his recent book, Right Here, Right Now, talked about that, you know, when he signed trade deals, he didn't just take an ideological view like Americans tended to and just throw the doors open and take a devil uh, may care attitude, but he tried to make sure that certain sectors that were important Canadian to Canada's economy or to certain segments of the Canadian community weren't devastated by the trade deals, that he was looking at it not just from an economic efficiency standpoint, from a social standpoint, a social stability standpoint. And that's the sort of an example in the economic sphere of what a conservative populism ought to be trying to do. In your answer, Henry, you used the word balance several times. Let me ask you, are there any contemporary politicians around the world who, in your view, are achieving that kind of balance? And who should aspiring populists be studying? Yeah, I think that um, in Canada, both Doug Ford and Francois Legault have done a very good job of balancing conservative economics and populist economics, uh, conservative cultural concerns with the concerns of tolerance and inclusion. Uh, again, they're different politics, but they're addressing different polities, different sets of voters. I think overseas, Isabel Diaz Ayuso, who is the governor of Madrid, she is somebody uh, who is now the leading Spanish conservative politician because she talks about conservative culture, but also inclusion. This is a woman who talks about the uh, conservative uh, nature of Spain and the his proudly talks about Western civilization, who is an unmarried, non-believing Madriano who, who um, uh, has a Depeche Mode tattoo on her wrist because she's rather modern. And so it's that sort of thing where you balance off the old and the new, the, the social with the individual in a way that still provides for human freedom and social stability. I think she's going to be prime minister of Spain, maybe sooner than later. But she's certainly somebody in, in the here and the now who can be looked to along with you know, the Canadian examples. It's a fascinating example precisely because it shines light on the difference between social conservatism and cultural conservatism. Do you want to maybe just elaborate a bit on what those differences are and what the kind of different political fecundity may be of a cultural conservatism, particularly as it relates to some of the points you made earlier about the, the power of nationalism as a kind of unifying idea for a contemporary populist? Social conservatism in the Anglo-American world or the Anglo, you know, the U.S.-Canadian world can tend to have a religious context. It, it, you can also see this in places in Europe that still have strong religious cultures like Poland or Italy where a social conservative will talk in religious language and in a way that supports a particular theology. Cultural conservatism transcends that. It includes it, but it transcends that. It is something that can speak to people regardless of background about their shared experiences and their shared nature, human nature. Uh, that you know, a, a parent has 
concerns about their children and about their dignity and about their role, independent of whether they derive it from a particular sacred text or from some other cultural experience. And so a cultural conservatism is one that includes what is typically considered to be social conservatism, but it transcends it by driving it away from particularist roots and language into a more stable and more broad-based font and approach. Let me ask you a penultimate question, Henry. Are we living in a populist moment or a populist era? We're living in a populist era, not a populist moment. We are now, depending on how one characterizes it, well over a decade into populism as a political feature. The denizens of those who chatter continually say populism is a spent force and it is over. And yet you continually see populists doing well in elections and populist themes left, right and center reemerging. I think when our children 40, 50 years from now are in their careers and university and writing the histories of the era, they will say that what we're living through now is an era that is defined by populism. It'll be defined by which type of populism came to power and how well they succeeded once they came to power. And, and, the, and the question is, they will come to power. They are already coming to power. More will come to power uh, in the next few years, left, center, and right. And that's because the pre-populist experts and elites simply have no answers to the problems. They apply old answers to new problems they get old solutions and then ask you to double down on the, uh, you know, the obviously unsuccessful solution and people are getting tired of it. If we look back in 40 years and we are still free politically, if we are still tolerant socially, if we're still wealthy uh, economically, then we will say that populism will have met its challenge. It will be looked at as we today look back on what can be called the labor slash social democratic era that upset the 19th century dualisms of politics to create a new order to address the new challenges that industrialization and urbanization brought. And if we're looking back and saying, gosh, how is it that uh, the West became subject to autocratic forces? How is it that uh, all the wealth passed from us to other nations. How did we go wrong? In other words, if we're more like the early fifth century Roman Empire than an ascendant reinterpretation or reawakening of Western civilization, well, then we'll look back and say that populism had failed. But I just don't see any way that we're going to get through to 2040 and not have seen populism tried in many leading countries. It's already being tried in the United States and in Britain. It'll eventually come to Germany, France, and, and others. And we will find out whether it succeeds. I think a prudent populism of the center-right will renew Western civilization. But the proof is in the pudding. I said that was the penultimate question. But if I may just sneak one in before we come to a final question, a prediction about the future of American politics. One of the things that is so admirable about you, Henry, as a analyst and a commentator is that from early on, you've taken uh, the rise of populism seriously uh, as a political force. On the other hand, um, you've been pretty clear eyed 
about its weaknesses and able to analyze it dispassionately that has precluded you from you from being kind of swept up and and forced to make kind of false yet powerful binary choices about your own political affiliations and commitments what do you think has enabled you to do that what in your kind of approach to analyzing politics has served you so well in this period of turmoil and polarization i have a habit of mind of moderation uh, i don't like to get wept up in enthusiasms i think in terms of probabilities rather than certainties so oftentimes you'll find people on one side or the other take a probability and exalt it into a certainty and i just don't let myself do that and i also think it comes from the fact that there's there's nobody that exactly represents me you know it's hard to get trapped up in enthusiasm when there's nobody who is singing exactly from your playbook. I, one of my favorite quotes is from Treebeard in The Lord of the Rings when he's asked by Merry or Pippin in the Fangorn Forest, whose side are you on in the war? And Treebeard says, I'm not on anybody's side because nobody's exactly on my side. You said that you'd prefer probabilities rather than certainties, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you as a final question, do you think Trump will be the GOP nominee in 2024? Well, I'll quote another line from Lord of the Rings when Sam meets Gildor in the forest and uh, uh, he asks Gildor for advice and Gildor gives him uh, nuanced advice and Sam says, well, that's why they say what they say, you know, go not to the elves for advice where they will tell you both yes and no. So here's the thing. I don't know whether Trump will be the nominee. What I can say is this, that Trump is a political balloon that is slowly descending. He's not descending so quickly that it would be unthinkable that he could win the nomination, but he's also not descending in a manner so that we would be sure that he's descending slow, slowly that we can say, oh, he's definitely gonna keep his altitude and be the nominee. I would say right now it's a toss up. I would slightly lean against him being the nominee, but I'm also not a Trump fan and I have to be upfront about that. What I will say is that Trump is somebody who I think is hurting his own cause with his fixation on the past. That Trump now says little except they stole the election from me and I want it back. And that's not an attractive message. And then you look forward and say, well, what can be, what, you know, Trump gets out of his narcissistic bubble and he decides to actually do what he did in 2015, which is offer a new message. What would he say that other Republicans aren't? He's a follower on policy now. He was a leader in 2015. He's a follower now. So it's entirely plausible that somebody uh, of Ron DeSantis, Governor of Florida, others that I know, like Senators Marco Rubio or Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley, could basically very credibly say, I represent everything that you want. I want to be fighters against the woke culture. I believe in inclusion. I believe in a strong nation. I am in favor of free markets, but I'm not a free market fundamentalist. But I'm not Donald Trump. And I think that the center of the Republican Party is increasingly wanting that. They may still like Trump. They do like Trump. 
but they are increasingly wanting to consign him to the past rather than to the future. And so I think that's, we'll see over the next year, whether that's what's going to become more obvious or whether Trump is going to become uh, the leading dominant figure against whom no one can stand. Right now, it's too early to say, but I think those are the trends that are vying with one another. And I would like to believe that a populist conservatism can become rest on a firmer ground, but remains to be seen. Well, Henry, we'll have to have you back on in the coming months and years to update our listeners, not only on this race, but some of these deeper trends of populism here in North America and around the world. This conversation has been just the tour of the tour de force that I had anticipated. Uh, Henry Olson, Washington Post columnist, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan, Return of Blue Collar Conservatism. Thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.